This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. Um, we're going to look at, we're going to break it into two two chunks. So we're going to take in a, a section of Luke 24 that we're we're not going to touch. I'll reference back to it, but we're going to look at Luke chapter 24 verses 1 through 12, and then pick back up in verses 36 through 49. Um, and Luke 24, as we as we step into Luke 24, uh, it picks up on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. It picks up. After a day of silence. So Luke doesn't record anything that happened on Saturday. So in Luke chapter 23, you see that Jesus is, is kind of like hastily buried. They prepare a place for him because it is uh, the Sabbath is quickly coming. And so they, they, they lay him in a tomb and they uh, return back. And I guess it, I, I lied. It, it has one line there says, They rested according to the commandment. But can you imagine... Jesus' disciples have just seen him two days ago, rear view, had just seen him crucified, dead, and buried. And then they have a day where they are commanded to rest by God's law all the way back into to following the pattern of God's creative cycle in Genesis. On the seventh day, he rested can you imagine what was going through their minds on Saturday? Saturday might be, uh, if we're honest, Saturday might be the day of, of the Passion Week, if we want to call that, or of Easter Week, that you and I might most resonate with in those moments where it seems like God might be silent. Or where it seems like we may not be able to see the full picture of what God is doing. I would say the vast majority of our life is spent knowing God is at work and yet not necessarily always having tangible moment by moment. Oh, yeah, he's doing this exact thing that I will see replay 50 years from now. Oh, that's exactly what God is doing, right? How many of you have that special gift where you just go, I know exactly how God is working all things right now for his purposes, more often than not, we go, I don't know how, but I am confident that he is. For the disciples, though, all they know, and, and we pick this up as we walk through Luke chapter 24, they know Jesus is dead. Right? And all of their hope that was attached to Jesus is lying in a tomb. That's what they know. And that's where we pick up in Luke chapter 24 at the first opportunity that they have to return to the tomb. Sabbath is over. Daybreak has finally come on the first day of the week on Sunday. And we see what happens with the disciples, with Jesus' followers right there, first day of the week. Picking up Luke chapter 24 and verse 1. It says, But on the first day of the week... At early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And I, you just imagine if it stopped right there and like, pff, Luke's gospel's over. They went in, body's gone. Crud. Fill in the blanks. But instead it continues. While they were perplexed about this, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. 
Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And as we drop down into to verse 36, I'll just fill in the gap for you. So the, the, that same day, there's two guys that are walking to another place called Emmaus, which is seven miles away. And while they are walking and trying to fill in what just happened, we just heard this report that Jesus' body isn't there. And you can imagine them working this out, what has possibly happened. Somebody, a stranger, just starts walking with them. And, and Luke fills it in that it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And Jesus starts asking them, like, what's going on? And, and they say, haven't you, like, haven't you heard that it's buzzing around Jerusalem? And it says that Jesus took all of the scriptures and interpreted them in verse 27 and, and, and directed their attention to how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And then when they get near to the village, they invite Jesus to stay with him. They still don't recognize him. And he eats with them. And as soon as he eats with him, as soon as he breaks bread, they go, oh, this is Jesus. And he disappears. Now, just imagine the freak out moment that they just had. So they get up. They had just walked seven miles. They get up and they go back the seven miles back to Jerusalem to give another report. Hey, I don't know, guys, but Jesus was just walking with us. We, he just broke bread and he's alive, right? And so then in verse 36, this is where we pick up. As they were talking about these things, right? So they didn't just hear and go, oh, sure he is. You can imagine the discussion that's happening among them. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high." It might be an understatement to say that, that we are at least somewhat familiar with Resurrection Sunday. And in our familiarity with Resurrection Sunday, we might lose some of the awe of what just happened in Luke chapter 24. 
One of the things that I love about the Gospels, and especially Luke as he goes through here, like the words that he uses to describe the emotions that are going on, like they, they almost don't seem enough, and yet they are ripe with just like, can you imagine if you dropped into the middle of the situation? So starting off verse 1, on the first day of the week, the women go back. First light, they're going back. They have prepared spices to go properly take care of Jesus' body because he died right before the end of the day. And they had to, like, like I said, they hastily got his body ready. So they go back as soon as possible to more properly take care of his body. And can you imagine, right, they had seen where he had been laid. I don't know if any of you have been, ever been to a graveside at a, at a, at a cemetery but can you imagine, two days ago, you had been at a graveside, and you had seen, and you had stuck around long enough to watch the casket get lowered into the ground, and you had stayed long enough to watch them put all of the dirt back on top, and you had stayed long enough for them to relay the sod back on top of the grave, right? And you go, okay, I've got, I'm busy tomorrow, but we're coming back in two days. Can you imagine if two days later you went and there's the hole in the ground and the casket is laying open and there's no body? Would, would shock be the right word to use for that? Would you at least have a passing desire to know what in the world had happened? Most of us would not look at that and go, oh yeah, that's what happens. I've seen this a few times actually. I come back to the, like, the darn things just keep getting up and leaving. I mean, that's kind of the cold, like the closest cultural thing I can give you to this. They get there, and the stone is rolled away. And, and you see the progression of this in verse 2. They get there, and they, they found the stone is rolled away. But then they go in, and they didn't find his body. And one of the funny things is the way that I, uh, I love the way that we have translated this word, at least in the English standard version, they were perplexed. Another way of saying it is they were at a loss. Again, still like, yeah, more than that. Deeply troubled, what in the world is going on? And before you, you might go, well, maybe somebody took the body. And I want to just take you to Matthew chapter 27, because Matthew fills in a little bit of the gap that happens here. In Matthew chapter 27, in verses 62 through 28, verse 4, it tells us what precautions had been made to make sure that the body didn't go missing. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 62 in Matthew's gospel, he says the next day, so Jesus has been, he has been buried, he is in the tomb, and it says the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore... Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers? Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Armed guard, sealed stone, 24-hour on guard patrol at the tomb. And yet, the women still show up to an empty tomb, and you go, well, how? 
That's why I love Matthew's gospel. It fills in a little bit more. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So now you like put both of these accounts together and you go, the women show up, guards are laying on the ground, petrified in fear, empty tomb, and two men appear to them and start talking to them. Is this just so familiar to us that we go, oh yeah, of course that's how it happened. Great lengths to make sure nobody takes this body and yet they show up. And there's an empty tomb. And it says as, as these two guys begin to talk to him, they're frightened. So they move from perplexed and at a loss to frightened and on the ground themselves. And the men said to them, maybe more startling than anything, they don't say, why do you seek the body of Jesus? They say, why do you seek a living person where dead people are? Can you, okay, if you're one of the women, can you imagine that for you? You have seen Jesus on the cross, beaten, bleeding, his side pierced with a spear to make sure he's really dead. You have helped take care of the body and prepare it and lay it in the tomb. And then somebody says to you, why are you looking for a dead body? The natural response would be, because we know where we put the dead body. But he says, he's not here. Well, and again, if it had just stopped there, he said, well, clearly he's not here. He's not here because he has risen. Not he is not here because they have moved him. Not he is not here because he's not here. He's not here because he's not dead. He's not here because he walked out of here. And then, what I love about this is right after that, they say to them, Remember he told you this. Do you like do you, hey hey remember how he told you all the way back in Galilee before you ever came to Jerusalem. He told you this is what must happen. The son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and he must be crucified and he must on the third day rise. And I want to be really careful what we are talking about this morning is not just a, a, a metaphor for how powerful God is, that God can raise dead things. Like, so he can do things in your life too. We are talking about an actual, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus who was certifiably dead and now is not dead. We're talking about a real death and a real resurrection. And and the angels pointed out to them that it must be this way. And you ask the question, an important question right here. For whose sake must this happen? One of the most important questions we could ask this morning is, is why must this be the case? Why must Jesus have died? Why must Jesus have been buried? Why must Jesus have been raised on the third day? I want to leave you hanging on that question because we're going to circle back around to that 
as we come to the end of Luke chapter 24. But as we build into this, notice this. This is, this is the nuts and bolts of God's plan of salvation. Apart from this, and we'll, we'll circle back to this too, without this, you and I are in the same situation we were in before he was dead and before he was buried and before he was raised. And, and where is that exactly? Where were we before Jesus? Scripture tells us that uh, apart from Jesus, you and I are without hope. That even while we live, we have no hope for this life or for eternity. That we are a people muddling our way through the darkness, trapped and enslaved to something that we cannot control. And if these things must not have happened, you and I are still exactly there. We are still trapped in our sin. We are still lost to our sin and our shame. We are still dead even as we live. So put a pin in that. He says, do you remember what Jesus said? This is, this is not a new message. This is not an, oh crud, Jesus just died. Heaven, quick, backup plan. What do we do now? Well, I guess we could raise him. No, this is the message that Jesus was telling his people from the very beginning. This is why I came. This is what must happen to me. He would tell his disciples over and over again. And, and, and what's great is before the crucifixion, they even argue with him about his purpose. Like, no, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and die, Jesus. Like, we're going to fight for you and you're going to establish the kingdom. It's going to be great. And what was Jesus' rebuttal to Peter when Peter said that? Get behind me. Satan. Yeah, like in other words, that message is contrary to why I have come. So Jesus says, This is the, the, the angels say, This is why, don't you remember, this had to happen? And they remember, which is great, verse 8, they remembered his words, and you can imagine they go running back to tell the apostles. They tell the eleven and all the rest. And relaying, hey, we just went to anoint the body. Body's not there. Stone is gone. Angel come and talk to us. Blew our minds. Jesus must die, be buried, and raise again on the third day. We came to tell you. And the vast majority of them go, that seems crazy. And you and I, we say, well, if I were there, I totally would have believed. (laughs) Probably not. In fact, it says that they believed it to be an idle tale. And I was like, you're just bored. You're, you're fanciful. You're lost in the clouds. Like, you're wanting something to be true that is not true. But then I love it. Peter rose and ran to the tomb. In John chapter 20, it tells us that, that, that Peter's not alone. John ran with him. Actually, John outran him. But anyway, John likes to throw that in there like, I was faster than Peter. Anyway. says, then, John chapter 20, verse 8 through 10, says, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But you notice that they go in, they see the empty tomb. Luke records the same thing. They go in, they see, they marvel at what had happened. But John goes another step and says they couldn't wrap their heads around the scriptures that said he must rise 
rise on the third day. So they go home equally troubled without a body to show. Going, what in the world is going on? And then you have the exchange with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus where they're going back and forth. And Jesus tells them again in verse 27. I mentioned this as we went through the initial run through. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So first the angels at the tomb say, hey, remember what he said. This must take place. Jesus appears to the two disciples on the road and, and relates all of Scripture to himself, saying this is what must take place. And then the disciples regroup in verse 36, and they're talking about all these things. And then Jesus just, in the middle of the room, shows up and begins talking to them. And again, we might read that as normal, and yet the disciples' response shows us this was clearly not normal. They were startled and frightened, understatement of the century. Terrified, thinking that they are seeing a ghost. I don't know, I've I've never been exposed to a ghost. I can imagine if I thought that I were, how I would feel though. You? Like if you thought you saw something supernatural that should not be where it is. If you're hiking on a trail and you go, hey, Yeti, let's go give it a hug. Right? If, if one of the people who's actually looking for Sasquatch wakes up one morning in his sleeping bag and Sasquatch is cuddling him, he doesn't go, Woohoo! I found him! Probably a little startled and frightened, yeah? Just a little? Uh, even if they were looking for it and found it, they would be like, Oh, good grief, this is horrible. So you can imagine, the disciples are sitting in a room talking about Jesus has just risen from the dead. What do we do with this? And then Jesus just like shows up in the room. And one of the crazy things about this is you and I read this now as as if it is completely normal. That there is zero awe of this. Like, yeah, of course Jesus just shows up in a room. But the disciples, again, their response tells us this is not the case. And, and I love that Jesus' first words are like, hey, peace to you. Like, and as they are like trying to find the exit, terrified. Be at peace. Well, how can, how can they be at peace if they think it's a ghost, right? And then, I love the next thing. He says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, out of context, why would you be troubled if you're sitting in a room and somebody just showed up not using the door? Why would you be troubled? Why would you start to have doubts in your heart? Because this is so outside of the normal of anything you have ever experienced. But in context, right, he he, he even invites them and he says, look at me. Touch my hands, touch my feet, look and see that it's really me. A ghost doesn't have limbs. Uh, you can't, you can't do this to a ghost. So like, let's play, like, let's, let's like do hot, hot, yeah, whatever, you know. Do our special handshakes. We got 12 of them. Well, 11 now, because Judas. Anyway, sorry, too soon. Interact with me. 
See that I am actually, and again, this is hitting at this thing. We are saying Jesus actually, physically, bodily shows up. And the disciples are invited to touch him, feel him. Right? right? I, and, and normally you go, that's kind of weird. Like if your friend says, hey, touch this on my arm. You're like, no, I don't want to do that. I can see it fine from across the room. But in this case, you would probably go, yeah, I'm going to do that. Because this is weird. And then as this is going on, and there's, as, they, the, the, as they interact with him and they touch him and they see, they says they still disbelieve for joy and marveling. Notice that the, this, the startling and, and being frightened is turning to joy and marveling instead. And then he says the most normal thing that they could expect, right? Do you have anything to eat? Well, why does he ask for anything to eat? And he eats actual food in front of them. Why? Again, actual physical, bodily resurrection. Not just a metaphor for, oh, this is the, the depths of God's great love for you and I. Your, your hope and my hope hinges on the fact that that tomb is really empty. Your hope and my hope really hinges on the fact that Jesus is still fully God and fully man and fully out of the tomb. We live in a time, though, that would tell us, well, that's not really the main part of this. That's not really the main thing. But the main thing is that Jesus really went to the cross and really died. The main thing really is that Jesus really was buried physically in the tomb. The real thing is, really, that on the third day, Jesus actually walked out of there and appeared to his disciples over a 40-day period to over 500 of them, First Corinthians tells us, interacting with them and continuing to teach them. And then, he, after he's established, this is really me, I'm really here. Verse 44, it says, He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And, and, and the phrase, while I was still with you, what does that trigger in your brain? I'm not staying with you. Right? While I was still with you in this, like when we were doing what we were doing before, but this, that has changed. It says that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, third time, remember how I told you. Remember what I've told you. Remember what I've told you. Remember what he told you, that this must happen. Remember how I told you that this must happen. Verse 45, or verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And again, we ask the question, why must this be the case? Jesus begins to fill it out in verse 47. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Starting right here. Because through this, real death, real burial, real resurrection, God has put on Jesus... The penalty, the payment, the consequence of your sin and my sin. And Jesus took it fully. If Jesus did not actually die on the cross, if Jesus was not actually buried, and if Jesus did not actually raise from the dead, then what would Scripture say to you about your sin? It is still alive and well. 
But catch this, there's an empty tomb. And there's a risen Savior. So what does that say about your sin? What does that say about your death? What does that say about your shame? What does that say about your despair? I think it says what Jesus said on the cross. It is kind of done. Is that what he said? No, he said, it is finished once and for all. It's done. That's why in the book of Isaiah, you can say that he can remove our, our sins as far as the east is from the west. Why and how? Through the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross, bearing the full brunt of the, not just the wrath of Roman soldiers and a Jewish people that did not like him, but bearing the full wrath of God towards sin. And he consumed it completely until he could say, it is finished, and he released his spirit, and he died. But he didn't stay dead. Instead, he rose in victory, conquering sin and death forever. So, so the question is, like, how excited are you that you have a risen Savior? What, what difference does that make for you? If you go, I don't know that it makes any difference. Then you've probably missed the point of Jesus. And so the invitation this morning would be, come back by, and, and enter into him by faith, saying he has paid it all. But then it also begins, one of the questions that might raise out of this is we might have a really refined theology of God. In other words, we might have a really refined study of the character and the nature of God. But for the disciples, what happened when right teaching met reality? I don't know if that's true. This seems too far-fetched. And I love that Jesus' invitation is one of, okay, come and interact. Come and touch and feel and see. What do you and I do when our theology of what we think about God meets the reality of who God is? It wasn't for a lack of being told. In just in Luke chapter 24, three times it gets hammered again and again and again. This is what Jesus had been teaching and preaching. This is what Jesus had been teaching and preaching. This is what Jesus had been teaching and preaching. And then, though, when the empty tomb is there, they're like, what did Jesus teach and preach? I don't, what, did he say anything about the third day? What would happen on the third day? And the women say, well, he, he's risen and there's an empty tomb. No, I don't think that lines up with what he was teaching and preaching. And then he comes back and says, don't you remember what I told you while I was still with you? That this must be the case? That this is how I was going to do things? And now this is the hope, not just for 11 guys and, and the various other people in the room. It is the hope for all nations everywhere. For all time." Your hope and my hope hinges on an empty tomb. Your life and my life hinge on the fact that Jesus didn't stay buried and dead. Not only that, but our future hope hinges on it as well. In Acts chapter 1, as Jesus ascended back into heaven, and and, and a picture of this too, the disciples watch him as he's ascending into heaven. It says that they're watching it and and he's like going up on the clouds and they're just still gazing into heaven. Acts chapter 1 verse 10. They're still gazing into heaven and behold, two men show up in white robes again, just like the resurrection. And they say, men of Galilee, why are you sitting there looking at the sky? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Our future hope is still hinging on 
a resurrected Savior who is coming actually bodily for his own. He will come back in the same way he went. And Jesus invites his disciples not just to remember, but then to act. He says, this is why I came, to suffer and die, to pay for sins, so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. And the question is, by who? Who should proclaim that? He answers it in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, as Luke picks up, Luke is the author of Luke and of Acts. He relays that Jesus tells the disciples, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? The very ends of the earth. And the promise of the Father comes in, in force in Acts chapter Two, when the Holy Spirit falls upon his people. God is continuing th- through his people to empower the sharing of this very simple message. God has made a way for your sin and my sin to be forgiven. He has made a way for you and me to be right with the God who made us to know him and to walk with him. He did it by sending his eternal son to die on the cross, to be buried, and on the third day, rise. And now we get the incredible pr- privilege of sharing that same timeless message everywhere we go. There's these two applications of it right off the bat. For one, am I forgiven or am I in the household of God through faith in Christ? Have I entered in by faith? Not, not, not through my, my good behavior, not through what I can bring to God, not, not what I can present to him and show him that I qualify for his grace, but as a gift of grace, if I've received it by faith, and am I walking in that? And then the second one is, is, is just right after that. If I've received this free gift of grace, am I sharing it with other people? He says, notice this. It's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. He doesn't say that the, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins is given to all in the, everywhere. He says it's to be proclaimed. It's to be carried. It's to be heralded. It's to be spoken everywhere we go. And I repeat the phrase, the... Your hope and my hope is hinging on an empty tomb and a risen Savior who is actually risen to new life. If not, if he's not raised, you and I are still without hope. And you might say, well, at least if he's not raised, I feel better about myself. And I want to just close by reading 1 Corinthians 15. 14 through 28. I'm not going to make any comment on it. We're just going to, we're going to finish with that. I'll make the one comment right before this. This is your life. Or you have no life. This is your life or you don't have life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 14 through 28. 
Paul writes it, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in other words, if there's nothing after this, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying, destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all.